I should like to call attention this evening to those words which are recorded in the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, from verse 46 to verse 55. In other words, what is commonly called the Magnificat, the words which were uttered by Mary, the mother of our Lord, after she had just listened to the salutation of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And uh, this evening, perhaps in particular, I would like to direct attention to the first part of this statement, namely verses 46 to 49. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. But uh, I don't really want to confine my attention to that. I rather want to look at the whole statement this evening from a particular angle and standpoint. Some who are here this evening will know that we are looking at the Magnificat for the fourth time, twice last Sunday, this morning, and now again this evening. But tonight I'm anxious to look at it in this way, as an expression of the consciousness of Mary, of what was happening to her, of what God had done, and was doing, and was going to do, to her and for her, and in and through her. Now, my reason for doing that this evening, at least perhaps the reason that is uppermost in my mind and that controls me this evening is this, that this Sunday evening is not only the Sunday evening following Christmas Day, but is also at the same time the last Sunday night of an old year. You say, what's that got to do with the spiritual realm? In a sense, of course, it's got nothing to do with it. And yet, we are still in the flesh. We are still in time. And so, we think in terms of time, and it is not a bad thing for us, now and again, to do with respect to the spiritual realm, what we do in a more ordinary realm. I refer, of course, to the habit of taking stock, to the habit of examining the position, the situation, in order that we may discover exactly where we stand. Nothing is easier in life in this world than just to go on from day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year without stopping to consider what it all means, what it really is all about as to what it's all going to lead to. It's so easy, isn't it, to be governed by circumstances and surroundings and events and happenings. We're always proposing to look into these things, but somehow we don't find the time. Something else comes in, and so it goes so often by default. And this can happen, I say, in the spiritual realm. It is possible, unless for us, even to attend a place of worship such as this, Sunday by Sunday, and yet not rarely to face the real purpose and object and function in so doing. There are still people in the world, though it's no longer in general the custom and the habit for people to attend a place of worship, there are still people who do that out of mere habit and custom, or various other reasons that they've got, their own private personal reasons, there are many motives that bring people to the house of God. We all know that perfectly well when we're honest with ourselves. But the question is, have we come face to face with the real object, the real purpose? What has listening to the gospel meant to us? Not a bad question to ask, is it the last Sunday night of an old year? How many times have you heard the gospel this year? Well, what's it done to you? Has it done anything? Has it made any vital difference to you? It's meant to. It's meant to change everything. If any man be in Christ, says the Apostle Paul, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, 
old things are become new. That's Christianity. Our Lord talks about it as a rebirth, being born again. That's the effect of this gospel when it comes truly. Has it come to us like that? Has it made any difference to us? Isn't it a terrible thing that it's possible for us, thus I say, to go on listening to the gospel and yet, in a sense, to be so detached and remote that it does nothing to us and we might just as well never have heard it. Now, that's a terrible state to be in. And that isn't my own personal opinion. Our Lord himself put this very plainly on one occasion. He said that in the end we shall be judged by our response and reaction to this word, to this gospel. Let me read to you his words. They're very solemn words. What he said was this, that uh, all men eventually would have to face this word of his, and they would have to give an answer. Here it is in these words. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now that's a very solemnizing thought. There is nothing more serious than to listen to this gospel, the preaching of this gospel. Because, according to our Lord there, it will meet us again. We'll have to give an answer. If we've ever heard it, the question is, why didn't we believe it? We shall be confronted by Christian people, by those who did believe it, and we'll be left without an excuse. They sat in the same chapel, in the same church. They heard the same gospel, the same message, the same everything. Well, they were saved by it. Why were not we? That's what he's saying. So surely, it is of very vital importance to us that we should know exactly where we stand with regard to this gospel. Now, let's look at it like this. To be a Christian means that we have had an experience of the grace of God. That is essential Christianity. There are many other definitions that one could give of it. One which I've often quoted because it seems to me to be such an excellent one is this. That old definition of Henry Skugel, that old Scotsman who lived nearly 300 years ago, he said, this is Christianity. It is the life of God in the souls of men. Now that is Christianity. In other words, uh, let, let's get it clear in this way. What makes us Christian is not primarily what we do, but what God does to us. That's essential Christianity. This rebirth is being born again. Now, that's all God's action. That isn't man, that's God. It's born from above. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Very well. Now then, I say therefore that the essential thing about being Christian is that one has thus been dealt with by God, and that's an experience. It isn't only experience, of course. There is the element of understanding and so many other things. But the vital thing is just this, this experience. Now, I'm contrasting it, obviously, as you see, with many other things which so often passes Christianity. I've mentioned them many and many a time before. I'm taking no risks tonight. We're examining ourselves, and in the light of our Lord's warning, oh, how often must one repeat it? One can never repeat it too frequently. Now, being interested in Christianity alone doesn't make us Christians. You see, you can take an intellectual interest in these things. There's nothing more fascinating than that. This is the most amazing system of truth in the world tonight, or that the world has ever known. It's a fascinating intellectual occupation to study this book and books about it. 
Many a man has gone through life doing that, you know, without being a Christian. You can be interested intellectually and only intellectually. Then there are the people who think that being Christian means doing good. That's the popular one today, of course. Any man who does good is a Christian, though he may say himself that he's a Mohammedan or a Hindu. doesn't matter. They say he's doing good. He's a Christian. He doesn't say so, but he is. He must be. That's what makes us Christian. You see, what we do, doing good. But of course, it's the exact opposite of all we find in this book. Other people believe it's attending church services. Particularly if you get up early in the morning to do so and things like that and adopt certain postures. Oh, that's fine. That's wonderful Christianity. Exceptional. But you see, it's still something that you do. Whereas I say the basic definition is this. It is that which God does to us. It's an experience. Now then, let's, let's examine ourselves in the light of that. Using what we are told here by Mary with regard to her experience. I'm going to use her statement as a means of self-examination that we may test ourselves one by one this evening in the light of this. For I suggest to you that it can be said that in many ways Mary's experience as reported here is in a sense the first authentic Christian experience. Here, you see, she tells us about her reaction to what God had done to her. You say, but that's different because she was going to give birth to a child. That isn't the important thing, you know, in Mary's experience, as she may explain herself. She doesn't refer much to that. No, no, the important thing is Mary's realization of what is happening, of what God is doing. And that's the thing to which she gives expression in the Magnificat. In other words, Mary was aware of an undergoing a spiritual experience. And she gives us here in her statement what I want to show you are the salient cardinal features and elements in this Christian experience. Now then, let's look at it together in this way. Let us first of all get rid of something which is so often a stumbling block to people. And that is the element of time in this experience. Or to put it still more generally, the way in which this experience comes. I've known many people who have doubted whether they were Christians or not because the experience hadn't come to them in a given way or manner. This is a very subtle snare by which the devil robs many people of their joy. He would have us believe that there is a standard experience, and one only, and that unless we have had that exact experience, that we are not Christians at all. But I feel that this one story alone, and it is, as I say, in many respects, the very first. Here is the first account of a reaction to God's dealings with a soul. This and this alone is enough to tell us that there is no such thing as a standardized Christian experience. Sometimes this experience may come very suddenly, but sometimes it may come very gradually. And the thing, of course, that I'm anxious to emphasize is this, that it doesn't matter to the slightest extent whether it's sudden or gradual. What matters is that it's happened. Now, here I say is a thing that stumbles many people. Imagine somebody, for instance, reading John Bunyan's Grace Abounding. And there you read that poor John Bunyan for 18 months passed through a terrible agony of repentance. Oh, he was conscious of his sin, his unworthiness and his shame. It was such an agony in his soul that he tells us quite solemnly that on one occasion he felt he could even smell brimstone in the air. He felt such a wretch. He was so unhappy on another occasion that when he happened to see a number of geese grazing in a field nearby, he envied them. He wished he were an animal. He wished that he were not capable of this awful agony through which he was passing, his agony of repentance, which went on for 18 months. Now, there are some people who think that if you don't go through that precise experience, 
that you've never been a Christian. I mean, they'd, they'd even emphasize the 18 months almost. And unless you conform to the pattern, you're not a Christian. Now, there is no scriptural basis for that whatsoever. Others, you see, read uh, an account like that of the Philippian jailer or something like that and find a man suddenly converted. And unless it happens to them like that, if they have to go through remorse for, and repentance for 18 months instead of seeing it suddenly, they feel they're not Christians. They say it must be sudden. Some say gradual, some say sudden. The answer is that there is no standardized experience taught in the New Testament. The case of Mary that we are looking at, as I said on one of these previous occasions, is most instructive in this respect. Thank God for it. I'm holding it before you tonight in order that I may perchance comfort somebody who's in trouble about this matter. Did you notice what happened to Mary? The archangel came and made the announcement. And instead of Mary jumping at it, taking to it with both hands, Mary stumbled at it and queried it and questioned it. Instead of being filled with a spirit of rejoicing at first, I read this. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Definite stumbling. The archangel goes on speaking. But even then Mary doesn't grasp it, she doesn't get it. He tells her about this wonderful child that was to be born of her, and instead again of praising God, Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? She said, You're talking nonsense, it's impossible. How can I bear a child? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. I'm not married. She stumbled. That's Mary's first reaction. Questioning, stumbling, querying, doubting. And then you remember she goes on to this second step in which when the archangel has answered her doubts and mildly rebuked her and told her that with God nothing shall be impossible, Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. She didn't get further. That's a sort of passive resignation. She hasn't seen it yet, but she's seen this. She's been rebuked for querying the possibility of this thing with God. She's been rebuked for putting a limit to the almightiness of God. And she says, very well, I see I'm wrong. I don't understand, but I'll submit. She went through that stage. And it was only later when she hears the words of Elizabeth, her cousin, the mother of John the Baptist, that she sees it. And the moment she sees it, she bursts forth into this Magnificat. Now, there you see are steps and stages, hindrances and obstacles, which she has to overcome. It's a kind of process through which she goes. She doesn't... Immediately she hears the message of the archangel say, I believe it's wonderful. No, no. That's possible, but so is this. Very well then I say that the thing that matters tonight is not whether this has happened to you suddenly or gradually. The vital question is, has it happened? If I may use an illustration which I once heard an old, old preacher using and which I thought was very good, let me use it in order that I may help you. He said there are two men. You can think of two men going on a journey, walking along a road. One of them is walking in a sort of gentle drizzle. But he's got a long journey to take. And as the result of this gentle drizzle, which has gone, gone on throughout the whole journey, he arrives at his destination, wet through. The other man sets out in glorious sunshine. And for the first three hours of his walk, he's continuing in the glorious sunshine. Suddenly the clouds gather when he's only got about half a mile to go. And a cloudburst takes place. And in a few moments, he is soaked through to the skin. They both arrive at their destination wet, soaked through. It took a long time in one case. It happened very quickly and suddenly in the second. But you see, what matters is not whether you got wet to the skin suddenly or gradually, but the fact that you've got wet through to the skin. God forbid that anybody in this congregation should be stumbled by that particular point this evening. No, no, it doesn't matter how nor when, the mode, the method. The, the vital question is, has it happened? Very well, let's come to that. Here's my second point. What are the elements in this experience as taught in this incident? 
They're all here. Here is the first one. The first is an awareness of being dealt with and being blessed by God. Mary, you see, puts that right at the beginning, doesn't she? He hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Ah, but you say again, uh, of course she's referring to the fact that she was going to have this child. I know, it comes in, but that isn't the thing that Mary is most aware of. What she's aware of above everything else, that God has been doing something to her. That's the thing to emphasize. And that is the thing that I would emphasize now. If to be a Christian means to receive life from God, if to be a Christian means that you are born again, if to be a Christian means that you pass from death to life, from darkness to light, that you're a new creature, a new creation, well, isn't it quite inevitable? That anyone to whom that has happened must be aware of the fact that something is happening. You see, it isn't a decision that I take. It isn't something that I do. It isn't the end product of my activity. No, no. Uh, the, the peculiar thing about this is, as Mary was aware that God was doing something to her, so this person who's become a Christian has the same awareness. I mean something like this. That uh, though you don't understand it, you, you are aware that something's happening to you. Something's taking place in your life. You're being disturbed. Oh, I've borrowed those words of Wordsworth before now. He didn't mean what I mean, but I can use them in a sense. He put it like this, you see. I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joys of elevated thought. That's it. I felt a presence. You can't be a Christian without being aware of the fact that God is dealing with you, is concerned about you, is doing something to you. God's got his hands upon you. You may at first react in a hostile manner against that. You may, you may not like it. You may want to shake it off. It's often happened. Many people have done that. But whether you like it or not, what you are aware of is that something's happening. You wish sometimes that you'd never heard of God, that you'd never heard of Christ. You wish you could be enjoying that other life with the world as you've always done. But something's come in. You're disturbed. Sometimes it's nothing more than that at the beginning. Just an uneasiness. Just an awareness that something's troubling you and has come into you. You wish you could divest yourself, but you can't. It's something inside you. It's the one who made you at the beginning, making you again. His creator hands and fingers are upon you and molding you. Mary was aware of being dealt with by God. So is every Christian. So is every Christian. You may fight and kick and struggle. And yet the whole time you know that it's not you. It's something else. You see, that is why, in a sense, I always feel happier about a man who's militantly opposed and is fighting with his teeth clenched and hating it. I almost prefer him to the man who feels that he, by living a good life and this and that, is making himself a Christian. With regard to that second man, I'm not aware that God's doing anything to him at all. He's doing everything. He's like the Pharisee who thanks God for all he's doing. But when this other man is struggling against it, and I see him kicking violently. I say to myself very often, God's doing something to that man. And let me give a word of comfort to some people who may be here tonight who are anxious about someone who's very dear to them. You Christian people, you may be almost breaking your heart. You feel that that loved one is going further and further away. You say, he's becoming more and more violent. It may be the best sign in the world. What's he doing? Ah, he's trying to get rid of this power that started dealing with him. It's God acting. He doesn't understand. He doesn't like it. He's against it so far. But there it is. God has put his hand upon him. Hold on. That's the first thing. Let me hurry to the second. The second is, of course, and it follows quite inevitably from the first, the element of surprise and amazement. It's here everywhere in Mary's statement. 
My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. He hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. He that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy. Don't you feel and hear the note of amazement and of astonishment? And again I would emphasize and underline this. I'm not at all sure that this isn't one of the most crucial tests of all. Mary couldn't believe this thing that was happening to her. It was so remarkable. It was so astonishing. She knew it was happening. She could scarcely credit. Should this happen to me, my low estate, a handmaiden? Is it happening? Yes, it is. But she can scarcely contain us, the surprise and the amazement at it all. That God had ever looked upon her and had chosen to do this to her. I almost feel that this is the acid test. Are you surprised at yourself? Are you amazed at yourself? You never will be, of course, until you're conscious that God is doing something to you. Oh, you can be very moral. There's no amazement in that. You decided to do it and you're doing it. Intellectual interests, all the rest of them. There's nothing to amaze a man in that. He's aware of what he's doing. He's doing it volitionally, willingly, and well aware of what he's doing. You see, there is no element of surprise and amazement until we are conscious that God is doing something to us. And then we are filled with amazement as Mary was. And we ask, in effect, can this be true of me? Is it really I? Is this happening to me? What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. This uh, awareness, if you like, of the process that is going on in us. Because the moment this process begins to go on, you'll find uh, tremendous changes taking place. You'll find this, for instance, that whereas uh, you never gave a single thought to the fact that you'd got a soul, it's now your chief concern. You never gave a thought to the fact of death. You often think about it now. You never gave a thought to the next world and life beyond. No, no, you regarded that as morbid, something to be dismissed, never to be thought of. But now it's very frequently in your mind you're thinking of it. The Bible, the most boring book in the world. The idea of reading the Bible for pleasure was well, just unthinkable, of course. But now... You find yourself wanting to read it and you desire to understand it. It's the book of books to you. And so on. Prayer. You never prayed at all unless, of course, you were desperately ill or somebody dear to you was desperately ill or some terrible accident or calamity took place or there was a war. Then, of course, you prayed. But when things were going well, you wouldn't dream of praying. But now you see that prayer is the most amazing and wonderful thing in the world. And what you can't get over is this, that you should be trying to pray. Is it possible? Am I the same person? Can it be I? The thing, the thing seems... Imp no, it's, it's imp I'm not. Well, you read all this, you see, Mary felt all that, this amazement, this astonishment, this surprising element, and you've got it, of course, in every one of these New Testament writers. Let me hurry on immediately to the classical example of it. The Apostle Paul himself. I live, yet not I. There's something wrong here. I live, yet not I. I am Saul of Tarsus. I'm not Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a blasphemer, an injurious person, a hater of Christ and of the gospel. I cannot be Saul of Tarsus. And yet I am Saul of Tarsus. I know I am. I'm the same man. You see, he's in trouble. He doesn't understand himself. I live, yet not I. Now, that's, that's Christianity. Here's a man who's amazed at himself. He can't understand himself. There's only one solution. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And he couldn't get over it. What was it? Well, it was this, you see. That the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he'd blasphemed and hated, and whom he'd reviled, should have loved him with an everlasting love and should have died for him. The Son of God, he says, who loved me and gave himself for me. He never got over it. Never. And that is essential Christian experience. Yes, says Charles Wesley, you're perfectly right. 
And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, and can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? Has this happened to me? That's what Mary was saying, wasn't it? The amazement, the astonishment, the surprise. Are you surprised at yourself? And are you driven to say with the Apostle Paul elsewhere, I am what I am by the grace of God. I can't explain it. That's the only explanation. I don't understand myself. I've undergone such a complete revolution. I was against, I'm now for, with the vehemence with which I persecuted, I'm now preaching. A complete transformation. New creature, new creation. He never got over the surprise, neither did Mary. And you know no Christian can ever get over this surprise. Here we are, a little company, and this last night of this old year, let me tell you that nothing so amazes me as the fact that I'm in this pulpit and doing what I'm doing at this moment. Why am I here? Was it because I'm a good man? Certainly not. Was it because I decided? Certainly not. I am what I am by the grace of God. And I'm more and more amazed at the fact that I should be doing what I am doing. I might so easily have been doing something else. I never decided. I fought against. This is God's action. Why should any Christian be different from anybody else? Why shouldn't we all be living the way of the world, living to drink and to dance and to indulge our baser passions? Why not? It's not because we're any better. It's not because we've got a superior understanding. It's not because of anything in us. I am what I am by the grace of God. And what's amazing is that I am this in spite of myself. It is God's action. It's what he's doing. That's what Mary felt. Let me go on to another point. You notice that because of this, and you see every one of them leads to the next, you notice her humility and her lowliness. He hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. He that is mighty hath done to me great things. And holy is his name, of course. Where there is a complete absence of humility and lowliness, there is no Christianity at all. I was reminding you last Sunday evening that Mary here anticipates the Beatitudes and they are, you remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. They're the Christians. That's Christianity. Why does a Christian feel like this? Well, my dear friends, isn't it inevitable? These things, you know, they need no demonstration. They need no argument. What Mary was conscious of was this. My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God. She'd felt the touch of his power. The archangel had told her that she would that the All-Highest should overcome, over, over, cover her, and that the power of God should be upon her, and she felt it. She had touched, as it were, God. She had sensed the eternal presence. And, my dear friend, I don't care who you are nor what you are, if you've ever had the faintest suspicion of a realization of the presence and the glory and the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God, it'll humble you to the dust. You'll feel that you're vile and unworthy. Humility. Lowliness. Mary wasn't proud of herself in any way at all. The Christian never is. 
Not proud of his works, not proud of his activity, not proud of his morality, not proud of his prayers, not proud of his understanding. What the Christian is conscious of above everything else is his own utter unworthiness. His complete unworthiness that this should happen to me. Elizabeth felt the same thing. Elizabeth, you see, was filled with the Holy Spirit and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's it. And Mary feels exactly the same thing. The moment we realize something of the nearness and the presence and the character of God's being, we see ourselves as we are in all our nakedness, all our sinfulness, all our unrighteousness, and all our unworthiness. You remember Isaiah, he was a very good man, but he was given that vision, that glimpse of God. And you remember what he said at once, Woe is me, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Do you remember the bold Self-confident and self-satisfied Simon Peter, the disciple, saying the same thing. Peter, the daredevil. Peter, the man who was ready to venture in and be the first volunteer always. Yes, but one occasion, you remember, he had been out fishing with the others and they'd caught nothing. And our Lord just gave them a command and they carried it out and they caught so many fish they didn't know what to do with them. You remember the effect on Simon Peter? He went to our Lord and he said, Depart from me, O Lord! For I am a sinful man. What made him feel he was so sinful and vile? Oh, he'd had a glimpse, you see, of the almightiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The manifestation of divine power. And it made him feel he was vile and unworthy. I don't see how a man has a right to regard himself as a Christian Unless he sees something of his own unworthiness and sinfulness and vileness, his own weakness, his own lack of power. Do you know the man about whom I'm absolutely certain that he's not a Christian is the man who thinks he can make himself a Christian. I am certain that he's not a Christian. But you give me a man who's conscious of his unworthiness. You give me a man who says, oh, if you but knew my heart, if you knew but the thoughts and the imaginations, if you knew me as I am within, you wouldn't regard me as a Christian. I'm very hopeful about that person. If you feel you deserve to be forgiven, I don't think you are forgiven. If you feel you deserve to be blessed by God, I'm sure you're not being blessed by God. Oh, these are the people. That this should happen to me. Humility, unworthiness. Sense, therefore, of it all coming from God in spite of our wretchedness and our vileness. You again say it with Charles Wesley, don't you? Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. That's it. Humility and lowliness. Hurry to the next point, which is, of course, gratitude and praise. My soul doth magnify the Lord. Of course. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Why? Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee, whose his praise should sing. Praise him, praise him, praise the everlasting King. My dear friends, have you a sense of gratitude to God at this last Sunday night of this old year? Is there a glimmering of praise in your heart somewhere? Is there something within you that makes you desire to praise God and to magnify his grace? Is it possible to be a Christian without feeling something of that? Do you believe your sins are forgiven? Do you believe your soul is redeemed? Do you say you've got a new nature? Do you say that there is a blessed hope set awaiting you in heaven with God? Do you believe all that? Tell me, do you really believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the babe of Bethlehem, first of all, 
was in reality the Son of God? Do you really believe in the Incarnation? Do you really believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, sent him into the world, sent him into the virgin's womb, sent him to be born as a babe in that stable and put into the manger? Do you believe that, that God so loved you that he sent his Son not only to do that but to die on the cross on Calvary's hill and take your sins upon him and receive their punishment that you might be absolved and forgiven and reconciled to God and made his child and given an everlasting hope? Do you really believe it? How can you believe it without feeling some sense of gratitude and of praise and of thanksgiving? My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit Spirit doth rejoice in God my Savior. Do you feel a little of it? I want to try and help you. Is there the faintest flicker of a sense of gratitude within you? If so, you can be hopeful. But if you can consider these blessed facts, if you can consider the Christmas event, the incarnation, and all that followed, if you can look at it with a complete detachment, with a philosophical or intellectual objectivity, and if it doesn't move you even to the slightest fraction, if there isn't a speck of softness in your calloused hard heart, oh, how can you be a Christian? No, no. The one who realizes what God is doing and what is happening says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit doth rejoice in God my Savior. The next step is fear. Yes, says Mary, his mercy is on them that fear him. From generation to generation, what is this? It isn't a craven fear. It isn't the fear of hell. It isn't the fear of punishment here. What is it? Well, it's what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews calls reverence and godly fear. It is, in other words, that sense of God about which I've been speaking. This is a very good test again. You see, the man of the world, the man who's obviously not a Christian, he knows nothing about the fear of the Lord but I'll give you a good and a comforting negative test this night in order to help you. If you've got a consciousness within you that the eye of God is upon you, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's hopeful. Who's a Christian? He's a man who walks in the fear of the Lord. He says, no, no, it isn't men and women that matter. It isn't I myself that matters. I know that God's eye is upon me. I'm ever under God. God is ever looking at me. And I can't escape him. I know that he's always the fear of the Lord. The mercy of the Lord is upon them that fear him from generation to generation. This, you see, is a healthy and a hopeful fear. It's what the Apostle Paul means when he says this. Work out, he says, your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says that to Christian people. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The only man who can know fear and trembling in this sense is a Christian. The other man knows nothing about it. Take your typical men of the world. You know, the man who's lauded on the wireless and the television, the the free lover, the drinker, the gambler, the man who indulges his sex. Fear and trembling, they know nothing about it. They will know. They will know. And they'll know to all eternity if they die like that. But now they know nothing about it. But a Christian does know something about it. It is the fear that a man is aware of when he is afraid of hurting someone whom he loves. That's it. That's the fear. Not the fear of a law, but the fear of love. The fear of hurting or wounding love. The fear of disappointing love. The fear and trembling. Well, it's because he has some realization of God's being. His holiness, his majesty, his glory, his greatness and his eternity. And this man realizes that he's ever in the presence of God. He walks carefully. He walks softly. He walks in the fear of the Lord. And lastly, 
The Christian is one who rejoices in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Mary has come to see that this child that is to be born of her is the Son of God. She says, all generations shall call me blessed. I, of everybody, have been chosen to have this inestimable privilege of being the mother of the Son of God. All generations shall call me blessed. As the archangel told me, the one who is to be born of my womb is the Son of God. And in anticipation she gloried in him and rejoiced in him. That's the final test of whether we are Christians or not. That our entire hope is centered on the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian is not only a man who believes in God. He's a man who believes in God through Christ. Your Mohammedan, your Jew, believe in God. What makes a man a Christian? Not to believe in God only, but to believe in God through Christ. To realize that it is Christ alone who can bring him to God. It is Christ alone who reconciles him to God. It is Christ alone who gives him this new nature and makes him a partaker of the divine nature. He rejoices in God. May I end with the words of Peter? Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Can you say, I rest my faith in him alone who died for my transgressions to atone? Can you say that? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world was crucified unto me and I unto the world. Can you say that? In the cross of Christ I glory. Do you make your boast do you rejoice entirely and only in him? Those are the elements in this Christian experience. Mary was aware of them. Everybody who becomes a Christian must be aware of them in exactly the same way. Very well, I end with this final word of encouragement to you. If you're in trouble this evening, if my sermon has made you unhappy, if you feel that these tests are difficult to answer, let me say this to you. Are you in trouble, I wonder, because you are still in Mary's first stage? Are you in that condition in which you have not yet realized that here you are in a realm that is altogether different from everything that is known by the world? You're in a spiritual realm here. Mary stumbled, you see, because she didn't realize that she was being addressed by an archangel and that he was talking about a miracle, about the action of God, the supernatural, the spiritual realm. She didn't realize that, so she stumbles. And she was trying to understand it all. My dear friend, I wonder whether that's your trouble. Don't bring the canons that you employ in business or in your profession here. They won't help you. They'll be of no value. You see, when Christ came into this world, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, the princes of this world did not know him. They were the great men, the philosophers and others. They didn't know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why not? Well, they were trying to understand him and they couldn't. Realize that here you're in a realm which is supernatural. This is God's activity. It is God sending his Son, doing the work by the Spirit. Dismiss all your categories of thought. Realize you're in a new and in a different and in a spiritual realm. Then secondly, give up trying to understand it. You never will. Great is the mystery of godliness. Christ is the eternal mystery. Two natures in one person. You can't understand it. Don't try to. Don't be a fool. New birth. Of course you can't understand it. It's God's miracle. Like the wind. Don't try to. What then are you to do? Well, emulate Mary's example. Though you may feel baffled and that you don't understand, 
If you grant me this much, that at any rate you've now come to see that it is what God does, not what you do, well then follow Mary and say, all right. Carry on. That's what she said in effect. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me, according to thy will. Just as you are, not understanding, baffled, bewildered, perplexed. If you're conscious that God has started something in your life, I say stop trying to understand, just turn to him and say, go on, go on. Submit. Allow him to go on speaking. Allow him to go on acting. Simply do what he tells you. Obey what you're beginning to feel within you. Go on, I say. And if God has started dealing with you, he won't give it up. He'll bring you to the point when some Elizabeth will say something to you, and you'll know that you have been born again. You'll be amazed at yourself, astonished, surprised. You'll be humbled, feel humiliated, and yet you'll rejoice in it and glory in it. You'll praise God, and you'll give all the glory to his dearly beloved only begotten Son, who though he was equal with God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. And was born as a babe in Bethlehem and put in a manger and went willingly to the death of the cross for you. You will give him all the glory and you will say, I am, amazing though it is, I am what I am by the grace of God. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift.